You know, as I was sitting out there worshiping with you guys and just the words that were coming from the worship songs to me were confirmation that God's in control. You know, just words like um, redeemed, restored, forgiven. Um, words like uh, you reign over us. It's just confirmation uh, to me that the word that I'm going to bring today is from the Lord. It's, and I have no doubt that the, that the Lord is going to honor it and it's going to bless us. It's through the redemptive work of Christ that we are restored and forgiven. And in the book of Hebrews talks in depth about the cross work of Christ, his absolute and perfect sacrifice on the cross once and, all, once and for all for the sins of his elect. So by way of introduction, I just want to let you know that the audience for the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians who had just come out of Judaism and they were facing much opposition and persecution. Their opponents were pressuring them to return to ritual observances, thus compromising the absolute sufficiency of Christ. So the purpose of the letter was written to encourage these Hebrew Christians into perseverance by demonstrating the superiority of Christ and his perfect sacrifice. As we look at the book of Hebrews by way of introduction, we notice that the book of Hebrews is a study in contrasts. If we look at Hebrews 10 verse 4, we see the insufficient sacrifice of bulls and goats. Hebrews 10.4 says that, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But in contrast, we see the, the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ as we read on. In verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, But a body you have prepared for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book that is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So we see the first contrast there is the, the insufficient sacrifice of bulls and goats and the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We also see the contrast of an imperfect, imperfect high priest with that of a perfect high priest. Hebrews 5, verses 1, 2, and 3, talk about the, talking about the Levitical high priest, says, every priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in the things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorance and misguidance since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because, if, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. But then we look at the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, in Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. Speaking of Christ, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did, this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. And the last contrast I wanted to share with you by way of introduction is that there was a limited and temporary access to God. The Levitical high priest went in once a year, and that on the Day of Atonement. But then we now have direct access to God. Hebrews 4.16 says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace 
to obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. And then in the text that we read just now in Hebrews 10, 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So, believers in Jesus Christ, who is God's perfect sacrifice for sin, have the perfect high priest through whose ministry has given us direct access to God. So coming back to our text in verses 19 and 20, let's read them again. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The writer exhorts his readers to enter into the presence of God with confidence. Notice that phrase there, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Their direct access was to enter to the holy place by the blood of Jesus. It is because of the sacrifice of Christ, the reader should have a new attitude attitude toward the presence of God, that of approaching him confidently. John MacArthur says the blood of Jesus Christ counts for everything, and the person who trusts in his atoning work can come with complete confidence into his presence. So do we realize that, brothers and sisters, that we can come with confidence, that we do have access to God by the blood of Christ, that we've been redeemed, restored, and forgiven, and now we have access to the the throne room of God. And it's because of the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. It's interesting that word in verse 20, the word for new is the Greek word prosphatos, and it's the only time that term is used in the New Testament. And it literally means to be freshly slaughtered or to to be newly slaughtered or newly slain. It was a term they used relating to religious sacrifices. See, Jesus is the new way, the fleshly slaughtered, slaughtered sacrifice who opens the way to God and the living way because through his sacrifice, he gives life. And he inaugurated this through the, through, through the veil. That is, he opened up the way for us through the veil. And the veil is a reference to the imagery of the tabernacle. It was through this veil that hung before the Holy of Holies that the high priest passed into the presence of God once a year on the Day of Atonement. But when Jesus Christ's flesh was torn, the cross of Calvary, the flesh that kept the, the veil from men approaching God was also torn. And it was because of the sacrifice of Christ that the veil of the holies, holies was torn from top to bottom, Mark 15, 38 tells us, thus opening up direct access for all that are in Christ. So once again, I just want to exhort you guys that we do have direct access. We have direct access to God through worship, through prayer, through the word of God. And um, it's something that we know theologically, right? But I just want to Make sure that it penetrates our souls that we know that we do have direct access to God. And it's a 24 access to him, and it came through the the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ. And then verse 21 says, not only can we approach him with confidence, but verse 21 tells us that we have a great high priest over the house of God. The writer is giving the readers a double assurance that we may approach God. First, because of the sacrifice of Christ, 
Second, because Jesus is the great priest over the house of God. Hebrews 2.17 tells us, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And likewise, Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So two aspects of Christ as high priest. First one is that he continually leads us into the presence of God so that we no longer have need of an earthly tabernacle or a special priesthood to stand between us and God. And the Hebrew readers needed to be reminded of this. Hebrews 9.24, speaking of Christ as high priest leading us directly into the presence of God, Hebrews 9.24 tells us, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven himself, now to appear, appear in the presence of God for us. And likewise, Hebrews 6.19-20, through 20, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The second aspect, not only does he lead us into the, to the presence of God, but the second one, he intercedes on behalf of the people, of his people. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. That's just an amazing truth right there, brothers, that he's interceding for us. That he's gonna, if we're truly saved, we're going to persevere to the end because God is keeping us. God is interceding for us. He's praying for us, and we're, he's going to preserve us until the end. And then Romans 8, 34, speaking of, of Christ interceding for us, Romans 8.34 Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? You know? Christ Jesus who is the one who died. He's the one who justified. He was raised and he also intercedes for us. And then 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. So Wayne Gruden, speaking of this aspect of Christ, says Jesus is our perfect high priest because he was both God and man. As God, he knows all things and brings them into the presence of the Father. As man, he has a right to represent us before God, and he can express his petitions from the viewpoint of a sympathetic high priest, one who understands by experience what we go through. I just want to remind you this high priestly ministry of Christ is that he is a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 2.18. Hebrews 2.18 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which, we has, which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then Hebrews 4.15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but, the one, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So we can draw with confidence near 
to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. So meditate on that, brothers and sisters, on just the fact that we can draw near and that Christ is at the right hand of Father interceding for us, and he is a merciful and faithful high priest who can sympathize with us. So with that, we're going to enter into the... Can you guys hear me? We're going to enter into the, the, order, the exhortation section of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is... Um, we see that the, in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to 10, 18, the author of Hebrews is making just a point of, of the sacrifice of Christ and his, the superiority of Christ over, over um, any other sacrifice that was being offered, the blood of bulls and goats. He was talking about the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. He was talking about the sufficiency of the priestly ministry of Christ over the Levitical priesthood. And it was, in between that, there was interspersings of, um, of warnings, of um, admonitions to take heed lest you fall away. But then in 1019, we see in the exhortation, and thus my title of the sermon, How Shall We Live? How shall we live in light of the perfect once and for all sacrifice of Christ. How shall we live knowing that we can enter into God's presence with great confidence and since we, since we have such a great high priest, a great high priest? So I want to bring before you, found in verses 22 through 25, three exhortations uh, to right living in light of these truths. The first one is drawing near in faith. We see that in verse 22. The second one is holding fast our hope, found in verse 23. And then the third one is stirring up to love, found in verses 24 and 25. So to our first point, drawing near in faith, found in verse 22. Let's go ahead and read that together again. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. To draw near speaks of a, a continuous, repeated action, continually drawing near daily, moment by moment, to draw near. That's the privilege that we have. One of the pri a privilege that we have as Christians is drawing near, and we are commanded to do it continually. Drawing near to God is the essence of Christianity. Hebrews 7:19. For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The concept of drawing near to God was originally associated with the Levitical priests, found in Exodus 19.22 and Leviticus 10.3. But now, now it describes all believers' approach to God. The readers needed to be encouraged to draw near to God because of the persecution they were facing. Psalm 73, verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all your works. So the context of this, the, the Hebrew believers were facing persecution, and so the author of Hebrews was telling them it was the Levitical priest who had the privilege of drawing near, but now in the new covenant all believers have this access and whatever we're facing in life whether the persecution the trials the afflictions that we're going through we can draw near to God we have a sympathetic high priest 
who can, who can uh, relate to our weaknesses, and we can maintain mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So we need to remember these truths. One way we draw near to God is through prayer. As we read earlier, we can draw near to the throne of grace to obtain mercy. We can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Another way we can draw near is through worship. As we did earlier, we were drawing near this act of worship. And as we sing these songs that are so God-glorifying, so honoring to the word of God, we draw near. If we're drawing near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, So the author of Hebrews tells us, draw near with a sincere heart, sincere heart, to have a genuine and real, unhypocritical heart, unlike the Pharisees in Matthew 15, 7 through 8, as it just said, that they were drawing near with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. We're called to draw near, not only with a sincere heart, but full assurance of faith, to have a complete confidence in the promises of God and his atoning work and this will result in a heartfelt assurance, complete confidence in the promises of God. Do we have that here today? Do we have complete confidence in the promises of God? Or is it just a mere, something that we know um, intellectually? You know, I'll tell you trials and afflictions and, and, and persecutions that the Hebrew believers were facing here will cause us to we'll, we'll separate the wheat from the chaff, basically, right? If you're a true believer, you're going to cling to the promises of God with your dear life, and you're not you're just going to hold on to them. But if not, you're going to waver. You're going to waver in unbelief. So I just want to encourage you guys that we can to draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Why? Because we have a, access to God. Because we have a faithful high priest who's over the house of God who can sympathize with us. So we draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These terms were taken from a sac the sacrificial ceremonies of the Old Covenant where the priests were continually washing themselves and the sacred vessels in basins of clear water and where the blood was continually being sprinkled as a sign of cleansing. These sacrificial ceremonies could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience, nor could it make perfect those who draw near, Hebrews 9.9 9 tells us, and Hebrews 10.1 tells us. So we see, again, this, the, the insufficient um, element of these sacrifices. They could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience, neither could they make those um, perfect who draw near. The word conscience is a divinely giving warning device that reacts to sin and produces accusation and guilt that cannot be relieved apart from the work of Christ. But for those of us in Christ, our sins are covered in the blood of Christ. God is satisfied with the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Our sins are removed and our consciences are set free. Hebrews 9.14. Let's just look, let's look, turn to Hebrews 9.9 9.14. We can see that contrast there. Hebrews 9.9. It says, According, bo accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. But then Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, 
conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then that phrase right there, um, back to our text, Hebrews 10, 19, Hebrews 10, 22, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water speaks of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life by means of the word of God. Speaking of Christ um, in the church, seeing that he, was, he, he washes us by the washing of the water of the word. So it speaks of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's lives by the means of the word of God and it also speaks, I believe, of regeneration. We read in Titus 3.5, Titus 3.5 says, Speaking of Jesus, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which, he have, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. Excuse me, Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. So we can draw near to God with a pure heart and confident faith because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God in prayer. We can draw near to God in worship. So my second point, my first point being that we can draw near in faith. My second point, how shall we live in light of the sufficient sacrifice of Christ is found in verse 23, holding fast our hope. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful to hold fast, also a con continuous, repeated action, to keep on holding firmly. To hold fast speaks of the perseverance of the saints. It is not something we do to keep ourselves saved, but it is, it is evidence on the human side that we are saved. A true believer will be around in the end. He who perseveres to, to, the, to the end will be saved, Matthew 10, 22 tells us. This phrase was important to the readers because of the opposition they were facing to return to the ritual observances of the Old Covenant. The temptation to give up the future unseen blessings of Christianity for the present visible things of Judaism was real. Therefore, they were reminded to hold fast the confession of their hope. The confession of our hope, the NIV translates that the hope we profess. The, ex the expectation that Christ will fulfill all the promises he has made and that all those who profess the name of Christ possess his promises. The confession of our hope, as we read earlier in Hebrews 6.19, this hope is the anchor for our soul. And we're to hold fast to this confession without wavering, literally without bending or swerving, to not follow any inclination that will lead us back to the old covenant in the context of the Hebrew readers in this, in this epistle. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. When, when God keeps a promise, that promise will infallibly be kept. 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he who called you, 
and he will also bring it to pass. Hebrews 11, 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who promised. And then Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of, of his glory, blameless with great joy. So with these promises, brothers, just this, these promises that God is, gonna, is able to keep us from stumbling. And Sarah, when that situation came up with her, the conception and the ability conceived, she, she thought, she, she considered God's promises and she considered him faithful. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Christ, that God is faithful who called you and that he will also bring it to pass? In the context of the Hebrew Christians, they were being persecuted, there was an affliction, and thus they were being exhorted to hold fast their hope without wavering. To hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. So what are we going through today? We need to remember that he is faithful. We need to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. I think of the example of Abraham in Romans 5. He didn't waver in unbelief. But he, again, in hope, against hope, he believed. I believe the text says. But, so we have numerous examples of faithful believers who trusted in God's promises, and we need to do the same. And that brings me to my third point. So we're called to draw near, to sincere heart. We're called to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then my third and final point is we're called to stir one another up to love, to spur one another up to love and good deeds found in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and, and all the more as you, you see the day drawing near. Let us consider, again, a con con continuous, repeated action to continually give thought to, and we know here at Heritage Grace, we, we usually emphasize this during the, the week before communion, the one another verses. You know, if there's someone that you need to get right with, go up there and ask for forgiveness. Be reconciled. We're continually supposed to be doing these things. We're supposed to be doing these on a daily basis, on a, on a, on a, on a more than just a monthly basis. We're continuing, we're, con, we're supposed to continually consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to continually give thought to these things, to set one's mind on the brethren and to develop a thoughtfulness concerning them. And as Pastor Emilio, I believe, was last week in his sermon, was saying, at this church, expect to get into one another's lives. If you're going to come here and you're considering membership, expect us to get into your lives in a way to stimulate you to love and good deeds. And so that's what we're commanded to do, according to here in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. To stimulate means to provoke or to stir up. And that word love, to love, speaks of agape love that unsacrificial love and good deeds. Titus 3.8 puts it this way, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together speaks of either abandoning fellowship altogether or lagging in attendance. The readers may have been abandoning fellowship altogether due to persecutions they were going through in order to avoid arrest, reproach, and suffering. And then corporate worship is a necessity to the Christian life, and fellowship one with another is one of the chief 
means of grace. If you want to look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 to hit home this point, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 is one of the verses that we share in our membership meetings about the importance of um, and what goes on in church, especially here at Heritage Grace. It says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from, the, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up, up of itself in love. So today for a Christian to stay away from worship services indicates a lack of love toward God and toward other believers, displaying the symptoms of selfishness and self-centeredness. You know, how can we apply the one another verses, you know, if we're, if we're not in fellowship? And I'm not, I know there's going to be times we're going to be providentially hindered, you know. I know we're not, um, we're not Sabbatarians here at this church, and I, I know there's, there's grace in that, and there's times we're providentially hindered one way or another, but if we can be here, we should make it a priority to be here, and especially parents with young ones, too. I mean, that's how you show um, an example to your kids, just the importance of being on church, being in church on the Lord's Day. But how can we fulfill the one another verses if we're not in fellowship with one another? We're, we're to assemble together so that we can encourage, again, to encourage one another. Encouraging one another, that phrase encouraging is also a, competed, a continuous repeated action. The Greek word parakaleo means to call alongside, to admonish, to comfort, and exhort one another. Hebrews 3.12-13 through 13 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an un in evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we're to do this as all, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There should be a sense of urgency in stimulating one another to love and good deeds, and a sense of urge, urgency to our encouraging one another in light of the imminent return of Christ. So the importance of corporate worship, the importance of just coming together to worship in, in song and in the word and to fulfill the one another verses. So what should happen when we enter into God's presence with confidence? And since we have a great high priest, how shall we live, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, how shall we live in light of this all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ, the crosswork of Christ, the once-and-for-all sacrifice, how he's seated at the right hand, interceding for us, and he's um, the sympathetic high priest where we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We should be drawing near in faith. We should be holding fast our hope and we should be stirring up to love. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this time. I just pray, Lord, that um, you just magnify your word into our hearts. Lord, that uh, the redemptive work of your son on the cross would just be uh, just a real thing in our lives, Lord, just a real 
event where we were transformed and we were restored, we were forgiven, Lord, and that now we also have access to you where you are seated in, right, in, in Christ is at your right hand interceding for us. Lord, what a glorious truth these are, Lord. And in light of these truths, I pray that you would stir me up, that you stir your people up, Lord, to hold fast to the confession of their hope without wavering, that we would hold, that we would cling to your promises, Lord, that, Lord, we would draw near in full assurance of faith, knowing, Lord, that we have access through the blood of Christ. And that, Lord, we would be those who are spurring one another on to love and good deeds, um, encouraging, admonishing, um, and, um, Lord, weeping with those who weep and, and just rejoicing with those who are honored, Lord. So, Father, I just thank you for this time. Um, just uh, help us to apply these truths um, into our lives as we leave this place, Lord. And I just pray that you would... Uh, just bless your people. I, I pray for your people. I pray for a blessing over your people, Lord, as we fellowship, as we uh, um, go about the, the work week, Lord, um, where the rubber meets the road Monday morning, Lord, that we would be, be drawing near in faith and holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In Jesus' name, amen.